Hello and welcome to Kunoi Quest episode 298. I am your host, Mike Apps, aka Wheels, and with me as always. Uh, contemplating the return to the trail series here, Granny Thunderbuster. A return to the trail Sorry, series? Sorry, that wasn't clever. No, it Sorry, that wasn't clever. clever. It's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, what, whatchamacallit's coming out soon, isn't it? Trails to Azure is out in like two weeks. Fun. I will get to that. Who the hell knows what? I mean, you've still got multiple Trails in the Sky games to go. Yeah. And then uh, Trails from Zero. Yeah. All of those are probably about 50 hour commitments, so. Oh boy, well. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Enough hours in the day. Yes. Today, we honor relentless Do tell, though, what have, what have you been up to? Um, I have been playing. More than a protector of Neil Muna. Uh, Destiny 2 Lightfall. Mind-numbingly interested. Please yes. tell. Uh, so I have completed the campaign, which uh, is, if you've ever played any Destiny thing, is a small part of the experience. If you've ever played an MMO or any live service game. Yes. <laughs> it's the main story beats, and then you get into kind of more gameplay than story beats. It's kind of just the way it goes. Um, the story was interesting but i feel like definitely some people are disappointed because it doesn't necessarily like it's last year was a hard act to follow because it was one of the best campaigns in like the series history uh but also kind of the problem with it was there was not not that much for the story to do for the rest of the year <laughs> like um, just gotta start building to a new story, I assume. Right. So obviously, last year was the Witch Queen, and the Witch Queen gets offed at the end of that campaign, and kind of the story beats after that are involved with what happens after that. Which there were some interesting things, especially right before the start of this. But um, you know. it's as much epilogue closing out and set up right. for the new thing as it is like. Uh, stuff on its own, I would imagine. Yeah. So this one introduces lots of things. Things happen, and a lot is left unresolved. And I feel like a lot is, a lot more is going to happen with like the seasonal stories over the course of this year. Not like in a creepy way. So we'll see. Uh, but gameplay-wise, it's very fun. The new subclass is Spider-Man-ish, and brings a lot more mobility to the game than I think has existed before. Like there's obviously a good amount. You always were biased towards Spider-Man's. Yes. I mean, obviously there is a decent amount of mobility in the game, certainly way more than Destiny 1, as I found out going back to that game again earlier this week. Um, oh man, wild. But... This video went right back to that. But yeah, playing around with this new subclass is a lot of fun. Uh, they've also reworked 
uh, a lot of build crafting and things like that. So the game overall feels fresh and uh, I don't want to know if I want to say ease more accessible is not what I'm looking for. Less they cleaned up a lot of like tedious things like um, loadouts was not a thing built into the game. Took off some of the craft and yeah. such. And now it is, which is, which is not just like a, it's not just like a um, convenience thing. Uh, it seems like, oh, now maybe I can like in the middle of battle switch to a completely different loadout for like uh, a different part of a, a raid or something like that, or even like in the middle of a boss battle. Like, okay, this is my, this is my ad clearing gear and then when we get to damage flays i'll like flip open the menu and switch to this loadout so there's a lot of like potential for what these changes could do to the game and it's probably going to take a while for um people to kind of figure out what is possible hmm. the usual with uh fresh starts and live services yeah so, yeah, I threatened to talk a lot about this, but I probably won't actually talk a hell of a lot. Save some of that for next week. Yeah. Save some of that for next week. Uh, but I will talk about some of the, some interesting things. Um, yeah. uh, some of the new weapons are pretty cool. Specifically, one I absolutely love is this cool, like, ice bow. Is that the city of Spring Monstrosity, or...? No, no, this is, uh, this is actually the gun you could have gotten, could have, like, since last year. This is the pre-order bonus. Mm -hmm. Uh, but... That's oh, ugly as shit, but I'm sure it's useful. Yeah, but it's like an ice <laughs> where, where you get kills, and it builds up, like, stacks of a thing, and then when you hip-fire it, uh, I think up to five, and you can visually see this, because you'll... So all of a sudden you'll be knocking like five ice arrows and it freezes anything it hits with those or puts up these things called stasis crystals. And it's just, I don't know if like, <laughs> is it very good? I don't know. I have, we'll have to use it in like higher level content to see, but it's fun. There's room for things that are cool. Yes. <laughs> and that's really, I mean, that's really something that Bungie and, destiny has always been good at like is this is this good i don't know but it's cool as shit like they gun design like the feel and gameplay of their guns has always been something since halo that they've done very well so uh it's one another one of those and there's some other new exotics i'm interested in checking out that uh could be cool as well including one that uh trying to think of what game it reminded me of something but you like it's like a pistol where you lock on and then you just fire and it like just auto shoots at whatever you locked on to or something like that hmm. like this it's just compared to the smart pistol from something i don't can't remember what but i don't know. think of the smart pistol from cyberpunk but that's probably not what you're thinking of. no but yeah, so that's cool. The new location is interesting. It's very um, 
actually kind of cyberpunk-ish. <laughs> there's a lot of nooks and crannies that should be interesting to explore. Hmm. And hold on, what the fuck? What? Uh, I have AEW on in the background. It just sounded like someone's coming out to <laughs> Boston. Like the band Boston. It's just <laughs> very confused. <laughs> I'd also like to take this brief uh, point to say hello to Fireminer and Budai, who are both in the chat. Hey guys, thanks for stopping by. I didn't want to interrupt you while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, where it's going. Um, soundtrack's very good. Uh, new raid is coming out next Friday, so we'll see how that turns out. Uh, but based on the new strike that's in the game, it seems to be indicating we may seem, see a character that's been hinted at for years, which could be cool. Just that character being Nezarak, which is some evil dude uh, who's been on the names of like armor and weapons for years. It's a lineup of vowels and consonants, that's for sure. Yes. But anyway, uh, Lightfall, very good campaign. Maybe not as good as Witch Queen, but still very good. Um, There's a lot of space to go down from there. Yeah, so uh, there's still a lot of content to come, so we'll see how that goes. And, hmm. Promising beginning of the year for the content. Yes. Yeah. Is uh, are you going to see Destiny people complaining about the story? Probably, but it's a very. Have you met a Have you met a fan of a service game that isn't yeah. complaining about the story at all times? No, <laughs> and it's they're particularly whiny to begin with. So, let's see. Like, yeah. uh, the game is fun as shit. Um, that's, that's we'll, we'll see how the storytelling goes. Like, I for me. For me, um, obviously, you go back and look at the history, and this is a game that the story changed a lot from the very beginning, uh, kind of on the fly. And I've been very impressed with how, despite all that, everything feels like they've actually been building towards all of this from the beginning, which is impressive. Just uh, To make you know. all that mess look intentional. Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, um, a lot of working on your feet. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm fine to stick, stick with it and see where it goes. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, we'll leave it at that for the moment, and we will mm. revisit it next week after I've played more of the post game stuff and. Uh, I can talk about the actual story content because I don't want to say too much in case. Anybody... Once people have had time to actually get to it, they're carrying okay, it up. So, exactly. Yeah, I assume that's eaten most of your time. I yes. assume you took a day off from work to do it. <laughs> uh, I should have. I didn't because I thought the servers would be a, would be a mess. And they were actually fine. <laughs> um, I would imagine they're used to launching this kind of content. But, uh, yeah. So I kind of just had to wing it. Oh, well. And fit in some extra hours of work at odd hours, so whatever. 
<laughs> oh, it's not good. Uh, yeah, you had time for anything else to find? Uh, not quite yet. I need to sit down and dig back into um, Dragon Quest Eleven. Uh, <laughs> as much as I enjoy, like story-wise, the Silvando content, I feel like it is kind of a pacing drag. Yeah, and the battles are kind of boring. So I just need to sit down and power through that and get kind of get power back through. Into it. It's only like three hours total. So. Yeah. So I sh I've already done a f like two hours, I think. So I'm probably getting near the end. Yeah, um, it's not so cool. Yeah. Um, I can say? The content honestly feels like it was more built for people who had already finished Dragon Quest Eleven. Oh, that's uh, weird. Uh, specifically, like, just because, uh, you know, it was not originally in there, and then it was added in, so it as much feels like it's there for people to be like, oh, that's what he was doing. Uh, in between when you uh, when the party is temporarily split and when you get him back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that and uh, I gotta start Dark Dot Heck. Part three. Volume three. Uh, Redemption, I think. That sounds right. Start digging into that, which should be fun. Yep, good volume. Actually, a lot of a lot of payoffs there. <laughs> yeah, I actually wanted to. I'll probably be playing that on stream next week. Actually, good idea. Still on the Destiny high right now, so yeah. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. next week. Also, side note: next week, I'm going to try and get into a group next week to not not actually attempt day one the raid because that's a time commitment i can't do but just... time commitment and the realms of people you'll have to work with to do such a thing are psychopaths so. yes but just <laughs> just find a group that wants to just go in and mess around in the new raid that's it it should be and i will throw on my stream for that for anyone uh, which will be next friday just to respond to Fireminer just dropped a statement in the chat. I assume that there's a typo here. So the first impressions of whoever got access to FF16, I assume that's what that's supposed to be. It currently says FF6, but I assume it's supposed to be FF16. Seems good. I mean, I, I don't think Square would let people touch it unless it played well. That's, that's just kind of it. Uh... It's one of those things like the first impressions for just about anything that is of that scope and volume is pretty much just like this has been stage managed into oblivion. They would not have shown it if it was not. They would not. They would have just continued to delay it if it was not uh, in a state to be played. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. People seem to like it. They still have done nothing to assuage the things that make me think that I will not be among them. But yeah, still, a lot of people who seem like they'll like it, like it. I still can't be bothered to care. <laughs> they uh, made a very strange choice with accessibility features. It's good that they're in there. I don't know why they tied them to things that take up your accessory slots. That seems so like 
it, just philosophically, I find that like frustrating because it's like the, the if you're taking up the accessory slots with things that remove aspects of the action combat, because like their accessory slot, the rings that do things like auto dodge, auto combo, like those sorts of things. The the theoretical idea behind that is both people who have difficulty with action gameplay uh, due to any number of reasons and people who just don't want to deal with it. And uh, both of those groups of people get less customization on the RPG end of things because they're trying to deal with the fact that they either can't or don't want to do the action bit. And that feels, even if it's not in this context a huge problem, I don't know enough about the mechanics to say, I find it philosophically off-putting. Like, a, a failure to actually engage with what the purpose of accessibility features is. But, yeah, it's just something that was that was bothering me when that news dropped because people got access to the game. Uh, like, you don't and probably shouldn't make accessibility features diegetic. They, that's, there's, there's a time and a place for that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um... But yeah, uh, it seems like people uh, interested in that game are liking it, so. What do I know? Um, let's see, as for what I've been doing. I mentioned this on Shenanigans, but I uh, randomly blazed through Prince of Persia The Sands of Time for some reason. Uh... Uh, I don't know, man. It's it's good. It owes like it, over over time, it has become more and more obvious how much of its identity that it owes to the uh, to eco game that the developers avowed having played before starting it and considered an inspiration. But who oh boy, it owes a lot. Um, the the par parkour and platforming definitely give it its own identity, but it, it definitely feels like you know the uh, puzzle solving interactions between the Prince and Farah, and a lot of the kinds of puzzles you're doing are very much uh, pulled straight from that mold. Uh, but they seemed like they were trying to address the issue with Eco that was that had at the time, which was that the combat sucked. And, you know, that, that's just kind of the thing with Eco. And some of that's to the nature of the kind of game they were trying to make. Eco is a child wielding a 2 by 4 It's not supposed to be great at combat, but, you know, the, the combat was slow and kind of tedious. And, uh... So they made the combat in sense of time very slightly more complex and infinitely more irritating. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Also, would I ask? I would ask what pixel remastered epics you're getting on Switch. But of course, Wheels is getting all of them. Uh, I mean, yes. personally, if I'm if I'm going to pick up the pixel remasters, it will probably be importing one of the uh, Asian copies with English in it that just has all of them in it. Ask what pixel you're getting on Switch. Yeah, I mean, they come in. Uh, I don't know digitally, I guess, but. Physically. I think digitally you can get them individually, like you can. Yeah. Uh, I think both me and Wheels are broken inside, so yeah, we're getting I mean, one, we're getting all. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting all of them, and part of that is I'm trying to get rid of a lot of older versions of games. So once I have those, I will finally sell off like the PS1 versions of those games, because those are... I don't think you ever needed those. Yeah, I probably don't. I just... I'm having a hard time getting rid of, like, PS1 Final Fantasy 6 just because I traded in my SNES copy of it for that stupid version so that's that's utterly tragic yeah uh, no, it was it was how many remaster games do you still have on your backlog I swear my Jesus God I can't even imagine too many uh, what too many yeah it's one of those things like wheels hasn't played the original uh, GU games, but he's still playing the GU remaster, so yeah. that's technically on his <laughs> Yeah, and it's ugh, it's so frustrating because I finished they finished one on PS2, and then the remasters got announced. So then I waited to do that, and then they announced it for Switch. So I waited. And you again. waited to do that. Yeah. It's, so it's been a long wait. Yeah. But a worthwhile one. Yes. For sure. But yeah, like if I if I actually sat here and tried to work that out, I just looked, glanced over at my to play pile and saw the Crisis Core remaster on it. It's like, oh yeah, I gotta get through that again. Yeah, I gotta so. do that. I gotta do uh, Tactics Ogre. Yeah. There's a lot. And Firemine says, and is it just me or is. Does it feel like I never see the normal releases of the PS1 port of it, but one through six, only the greatest hits releases? Uh, yeah, those were those were way those were way the hell more common. Um, the the black labels on those, I think you basically had to get them in the first about three to six months after they came out, and then they were greatest hits forevermore. And like surreptitiously, Square reprints some of those old PS1 and PS2 games every so often. I see companies do that. And those uh, those greatest hits versions are always the ones that they're reprinting. Sorry, just got a message. I'll be I'll be uh, back to rambling in just a moment. No worries. Uh, okay, there we go. Um, but yeah, uh, those, I think just by dint of statistics, those, those various sets of versions are way more common. Um, I think basically all of those versions, except perhaps for one and two, are completely outmoded at this stage. But, um, let's see. 
yeah, what I've been playing. Like I said, I was, I was playing Princess Persia's Sands of Time. Uh, I had forgotten how much combat is in that game and how fucking bad it is. It's, I don't think it's constant. Bad, but there is definitely what? way. I said, I don't think it's bad, but there's definitely way too much of it. It's one of those things where, like, if there was maybe a third the amount there currently is, it would be fine. But there's so many, and what really exacerbates it is that there are tons of situations that that game will drop you into an area, and you'll be surrounded by three or four enemies, and it's like, okay, that's a reasonable amount of enemy. And then when you kill one, another one will drop in, and it will keep happening for like a dozen or so enemies. And that has the psychological effect of making them feel even longer. So get used to uh, X square square triangle and run up to wall X square triangle. Uh, those are your fastest knockdowns uh, and get used to hearing Yuri Lowenthal go bah! every time that he uh, stabs an enemy with a knife. Um, Lovely. Yeah, it's, 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 it's frustrating. It really, it really holds the game back. Uh, the, the other thing that I had forgotten is that uh, comparative to the other two Sands of Time games, the game is kind of sluggish. It's weird. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, it it's definitely slow-paced to some degree intentionally, but it also just has like some slightly unresponsive controls, which are mostly fine, because you're able to rewind, and then you get to the end of the game, where the gimmick is that you don't have the dagger. And... Uh, <laughs> and are doing some of the hardest platforming sequences in the game and not getting any sort of uh, leeway on fucking them up. So that's regrettable. Um, so I finished that, and then I started playing more here with them. Uh, because Ouch. why... What? Ouch. I, I, I kind of like it better. Really? Yeah, so I, I'm going to lay out my case here. Okay. Um, so one is that controls way better. You may begin your case. Okay, I can see that. Uh, it, in general, they sped it up, which just generally makes it feel more responsive. But uh, just like if you, if you press a button, the prince is going to do something much more snappily than it does than he does in Sands of Time. Uh, the uh, combat, there's probably about the same number of enemies in the game, but you don't have to stab them with the dagger. They tend to die a lot faster. Uh, the game is making a bit better use of the time powers as both a gameplay and narrative conceit. Uh, the uh, general like, just moment-to-moment -moment puzzles are they're very differently formatted because most of Sands of Time is formatted to be traversed in one direction. You, you, you move through and then the game locks a gate behind you and you will never be returning the other way. And that gives it certain uh, set piece advantages, but uh, the puzzles tend to be altogether more simplistic because the area only really has one direction it can go through. Worry with them has a lot more areas that are designed to be traversed in multiple directions, gone through multiple times, 
And so the puzzles tend to be correspondingly a little more complex, which I found more interesting. Uh, the biggest problem with the game is uh, aesthetic. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm hot and cold on Sands of Time aesthetic. I'm mostly fine with the visuals of Warrior Within, uh, barring some regrettable choices. The music is essentially a top-to-bottom mistake. Uh, infamously, uh, Warrior Within's soundtrack uh, has multiple tracks by Ott's new metal band Godsmack, uh, who I believe were chosen because a song of theirs had been in the Scorpion King movie from 2003. Uh, it is extremely funny now. It was... Uh, treated with extreme derision then. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's one of those things like, I think it's funny enough that I mostly forgive it, but it is one of those things where it's like, uh, outside of the raw context, it was basically the wrong choice of the game. Every time that there is any meaningful amount of combat starts slamming an extremely generic electric guitar riff. Uh, the music is essentially a top-to-bottom mistake. Uh, but I think that the actual game surrounding that is better. And the, the other thing is that when I play Sands of Time now... So, like, the, the infamous thing with Warrior Within when it was new was that people were very displeased with the characterization of the prince in this game, because he was very uh, selfish and uh, angry, essentially the entire game. And the, the the thing that I run into as I play it and Sands of Time back to back is that I don't actually like the Sands of Time prince in Sands of Time that much. <laughs> He's very, very entitled and obnoxious and whiny he spends like like after he realizes he's interested in Farah romantically he spends like a ton of his internal monologue with why shouldn't she like me I shall take her as my bride and tame her it's like man I don't have time for your weird shit I'm not interested in that and then, of course, the bit that they end off the game with, you know, at the time they probably thought was really cute. And I find it, like, especially now, it feels really off-putting. <laughs> For anyone who didn't actually finish that game, the last thing he does before giving the dagger back to try to prevent the game's events from happening is... He, uh, like, spoilers for a 20-year-old game, uh, you reach the end of the game, you put the sands of time back in the hourglass, it sends you back to before the game started, and the entire narrative of the game was the prince telling Pharaoh what happened to a version of her that had never experienced any of it, and who obviously does not believe a single word he's just said. <laughs> and so... Uh, but, you know, he still has strong feelings for her because of what he went through. And 
before handing her the dagger back after telling her don't trust the evil vizier who's obviously evil uh, is uh, he forcibly kisses her she gets pissed and he rewinds in the hand to the dagger and that's just kind of gross a little bit um, yeah uh, at the time uh, most people whose voices were uh, heard about that game it's like oh that's that's a cute ending and it's like oh man no that's a weird sexual assault. Uh, <laughs> not a huge fan. Um, but yeah, and in general, you know, with the way he acts throughout the entire game, it just leaves kind of an ugly aftertaste with it for me. And I don't feel it, it feels to me like, yeah, of course he's pretty selfish and warrior within. He's pretty damn selfish in sense of time. <laughs> like, it's not until Two Thrones that they really reckon with what his character was in both of those games. And at the end, he has to just sort of be like, yeah, I fucked up. I have to live with that. And so, you know, I, I, the characterization of the Prince and Warrior Within doesn't super bother me. Um, if I were to say, how about rewatching the movie? Yeah. Uh, I didn't watch it in the first place. I heard it was pretty decent. Never it's around it's to really it. fun. Really fun. Yeah. It's uh, uh, probably, honestly, a better version of the original story in some ways. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty good. It's fun. I, I recommend it to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, just one of those things where, like, you know, going back to Sands of Time with a fresh set of ice, hardly a bad game for the most part, but it definitely is one of those things where it's like, yeah, yeah, I, uh, there's definitely a lot of parts of this that I feel kind of lukewarm on. Uh, I'll, I'll keep at it with Warrior Within. Um, like, like I said, I've been enjoying that. I'm shooting for the good ending, because uh, even though that requires a lot of being very careful to find life upgrades. But it's interesting enough. Um, let's see, what else have I been playing? Have I been playing anything else? Uh <sighs> But yeah, uh, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, I have been, oh yeah, I've been playing uh, Yakuza Ishin, or Like a Dragon Ishin. Uh, I'm going to be accidentally swapping between the words Yakuza and Like a Dragon a lot. Uh, I found how the game contrived a baseball minigame. Sweet. There is uh, a, a weirdo out in one of the districts that has gotten hold of cannon and wants to test uh, how well you can uh, cleave cannon balls in half with your sword. <laughs> and he shoots curveballs from his cannon, he shoots change-ups from his cannon. Don't ask how that works. Uh, but since you also have a gun in this game, it's, it, you can also set it to a target shooting minigame. It's basically a rhythm game. Uh, which would not be the game's only minigame, or the minigame. There's also a dancing minigame, and a karaoke minigame, an anachronistic karaoke minigame. I have no time for this game, but I want to play this game now. Uh, Budai says that he's going to be buying uh, Wo Long this weekend. I'm asking if either of us are. Uh, My gaming dollars this month are reserved for Trails to Azure and Resident Evil 4 Remake. Uh, I'm interested in Wolong because people. I guess that seems to be the 
next uh, sort of soulsy sort of thing that's being made by the Team Ninja people, as far as I can tell. So I don't really remember what it is. Wolong Fallen Dynasty, uh, action RPG from Team Ninja. Uh, it, it basically sounds like it's it's probably something being made by some amount of the Stranger of Paradise and Neo people. Okay. Could be very good, then. Yeah. Uh, Technocoy has had a very busy opening of the year, actually. Yeah. So I think Rise of 3 comes out soon. I think they also are involved with, uh, with Wild Hearts. They, yeah, they're the developer on that. Yeah, Omega Force. And it's super weird to see Omega Force developed and EA published. Yeah. An EA Originals title, what the hell does that mean? EA Originals is usually their thing for, like, publishing games that they... Usually it's for their, like, indie games. I have no yeah. idea how that is. But apparently Wild Hearts seems to be what the Tokiden team has been doing. Yeah, I guess. People who like Monster Hunter seem to like it. I, can't, um, I cannot muster any interest for it. Mostly because mm-hmm. I have plenty of... Um, um, of actual Monster Hunter. Monster Hunter <laughs> left to play, but also just like someone's like, oh, it's like Monster Hunter X Fortnite because he's building or something. And my thought was just, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> that, that does not yeah. sell me on this game. Yeah, allegedly, like, actual just Monster Hunting is pretty good. Like, the thing I heard from people uh, playing it was basically. That you know, it's it's basically what you would expect if they kept trying to make Toki Den games. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll get to it eventually. I end up buying all these Monster Hunter clones, but Fireminer says just make Toki Den three. Um. <laughs> Honestly, I may if the day it came out, I happened to be in a Target, and I was like, oh, if I see this here, I may buy it, and they didn't have it, and then I lost. You wouldn't interest. go out of your way. For yeah, and then I lost interest. So. Mm-hmm. Budai seems to regret having purchased it. So. Also, Fireminer asks EA Japan when, and it's like they've had a number of Japanese uh, initiative studios at various points, uh, including the oft forgotten back in the late 90s when EA bought a significant stake in Square and they made Square Electronic Arts. But, uh, you'll see at the beginning of a lot of their PS1 and early PS2 games as uh, they were involved in localization. There was an EA Square that was a Japanese studio set up by uh, Electronic Arts and Square that managed to put out one game at the PS2's launch called X-Squad that no human being has ever played. True story. Um, but, yeah... Uh, but yeah, I've been I've been enjoying like a Dragon Uh It definitely is a game that benefits from you taking about eh, about ten or twenty minutes to look up the major major players of the uh, Bakumatsu period leading up to the Meiji Restoration. Uh, but that's that's kind of the long and short of it. Uh, otherwise, it's it's uh, if you liked Yakuza Zero. Uh, it's it's the game they made directly before it, and it sure feels like it. So, uh, yeah, strong strong recommendation. It's also been funny playing it because I can see uh, assets that were logically repurposed into uh, Yakuza Zero. Because like 
One of the most infamous bits of the Yakuza Zero is the bit where you like you go to the fucking bowling alley and you pull a turkey and they give you a chicken. That chicken could be a manager in your real estate company. <laughs> you know, everyone loves everyone loves Nugget. Uh, you know, great nonsensical bit. And then you play Like a Dragon Yashin, the game that they made right before it, and there are just chickens wandering around. And it's like, oh, they put that in there because they had that chicken asset lying around and trying to both add a sub-story, like give you a reason to play the bowling minigame, and, you know, make use of those assets while continuing, like, the silly tone that a lot of sub-stories have. So... You know, it's, it's funny to see that from the other direction of like, oh, that's where this came from. That is why they put the chicken in Yakuza Zero. They had this lying around. Uh, Fireminer says, Tokiden 3, God Theater 4, Freedom Wars 2, Soul Sacrifice 2. There's so many uh, PS Vita games that Fireminer wants a sequel for. And all of them are Monster Hunter <laughs> style yeah. games. Uh, Soul Sacrifice 2 would be the one I would really want because that was such a weird monster hunter. That one had like a style and something to it. Yeah. Yeah, it and was just it was like almost almost there. Hmm. They didn't quite get it. Yeah, there was an entire cottage industry uh on the vita of making games that were designed for people who had bought a vita assuming that's where the next monster hunter would be <laughs> and had been burned but not willing to sit uh yeah uh and as i'm involved with soul sacrifice in some regard what's that so wasn't Inafune involved with Soul Sacrifice? He was the executive producer. Uh, what that means varies a great deal from company to company. I have no idea what he did on that project. <laughs> but yeah, that was Inafune produced, and it was uh, internally, I believe, it was like Sony's Japan studio that actually built the thing. So that one is uh, dead as they come, if that's the case. Let me double check just to make sure that I am not blowing smoke. Yeah, joint development between Marvelous AQA, AQL and Sony's Japan Studio. That is dead as they come. Uh, Inafune is credited as a designer, so presumably he came up with sort of some portion of the uh, like unique gameplay loop. Uh, probably it's at least pitched the sacrifice idea. Keep making, seeing a small amount of clamoring for a Sony handheld. To me, I see no reason. What about y'all? Sony will never make a dedicated handheld again, I would not expect. Uh, they... So one of the things that uh, is very powerful uh, in essentially any market is the perception of being a market leader. And like after losing the after the vita came out and failed they were very quick to try to paper over it in part because it hurt their perception of being the market leader uh i think that they were burned very badly by that uh i would imagine that it mostly 
mostly by virtue of them not having spent a lot of money on it. Relatively speaking, after its launch, it probably didn't lose them a lot of money per year. But I'm sure that it probably, year over year, it probably never actually turned a profit. <laughs> PSP was more of a success than it even should be, partly because of Monster Hunter Japan. Like that, yeah, that's the, that's the thing, is that, like, Monster Hunter really pulled the PSP's fat out of the fire, like that becoming as big as it was. Uh, but like you would see things that seemed like they should have been surefire sellers in various parts of the world, like uh, at the time marketed as exclusive Grand Theft Auto games that just came out and tanked and tanked and tanked. Uh, yeah. So it's one of those things like, Maybe you would see the audience that cares about PlayStation uh, more interested in handhelds, but I don't think that there's been... The other thing is that Sony never really cultivated a an audience to thinking that the handhelds really mattered. Like, they were always where, you know, they, they were the dumping ground for the lesser games. Uh, you know, the the main system gets the main thing, the uh, the handheld gets the the shittier version, and like that's that's you know how most companies treated the Game Boy in a lot of ways. But you still had a lot more just stuff that was like this is unique, and like you you can take more of a chance on unique because it's a little less expensive. Uh, what are Nintendo's most important franchises, not including Mario? Uh, I would say probably uh, probably Splatoon and Animal Crossing at this stage. Both of those are monster sellers. Zelda's up there, but uh, at 20 million... Splatoon, what? Is, so Splatoon has become huge. So the, the way I would put it is that at, at like 20 million units, Breath of the Wild has outsold every its closest competition by like a hundred percent like it is more than twice as much as any other zelda game uh god what are the current numbers on animal crossing new horizon uh okay so we're looking at just under 40 million units so a little less than twice as much as breath of the wild uh, and Splatoon 3 is currently at 10 million uh, in less than a year. So, like, Zelda's huge, especially as a legacy franchise. But uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I would call it more important than that in this stage. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely moving from presumably strength to strength. Uh, if Tears of the Kingdom is anything is anywhere near as good as everyone has a right to expect it to be at this stage. <laughs> uh, but it is one of those things like... And, you know, to, to be fair, Breath of the Wild did outsell Splatoon 2. So, we'll see where things go. Uh, but it's one of those things where, like, Splatoon 2 outsold every Zelda game that is not Breath of the Wild. <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll need a bit more evidence before I say that Zelda is in that uh, third place spot. And of course, this is bearing in mind that uh, the crown jewel of Mario is actually Mario Kart. 
just wild. Which, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where, like, people who play a ton of video games are always fucking furious at Mario Kart because Mario Kart does not care how good you are at video games. It is going to choose to fuck you up with, like, your little cousin is going to throw a blue shell at you and fuck you up 50 times over the course of a race. That's just going to happen. Uh, that's that's just how that... Everyone is going to have a good time. Yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, also, Fireminer asks, how the fuck did uh, Splatoon sell that many? The answer is that uh, it is the... Uh, online shooter of choice for people whose parents will not buy them Call of Duty. And it's very big in Japan, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Platoon 3 sold, like, 3 million units in Japan in, like, two weeks. Yeah. Like, some nightmarish number. Uh, you know, a, a region that typically, like, a, a big shooter release will sell a couple hundred thousand. Um, but, yeah, it's that, and, like I said, if your parents won't let you buy Call of Duty, they'll buy you Splatoon. And among that, like, family-friendly shooter market, it's basically unchallenged. Uh, but yeah, uh, what is Mario Kart 8 Deluxe at as of now? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's something so horrifying. The last 52 time. million units! Yep. It's... Like, legitimately... If you even, own a Switch, that doesn't even count is, what it sold on Wii U as well, right? Which was not, yeah, that is uh, that is specifically number. for Deluxe. Just not a tiny number either. If you own a Switch, it is basically a coin toss about whether you also own Mario Kart. <laughs> like that number is fucking wild. That that kind of attach rate for a single game, nuts. Um, and like. But that's the thing, is that, like, these these games that do not... Uh, oh, yeah, and the, the other one, that, uh, the other elephant in the room would, of course, be Smash. But that includes Mario in it, so I'm not counting it. Yeah. Um, even the name Super Smash Brothers definitely initially is to tie it to Mario. But, uh, but yeah, like, uh, Mar Mario Kart is the, the crown jewel, the thing that no matter how bad the platform sells, anyone who has the platform will have Mario Kart. Uh, I think Mario Kart 8 Deluxe has outsold Mario Kart Wii at this stage. Uh, yeah, uh, fairly healthily by about 18 million units. And Mario Kart Wii sold a truly like tremendous 38 million units. Yeah. The only thing yeah, that sold that better than Mario Kart Wii was... The thing that was packed in with the system. And it wasn't they didn't they pack in Mario Kart Wii at some point as well? To some extent, it was not nearly as long as it was packed in uh, as Wii Sports was, nor at the boom period of the system. But yeah, I think to for some period it was a pack-in title, and that's true of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe as well. Uh, but it is one of those things where like you put Mario Kart on the box, it has. It, it has a very drastic effect on people's willingness to grab things. The, I mean, you can really see why it's it's I mean, that series in general is incredibly accessible and fun. Like, oh yeah, it's it's very fun. 
anyone can get in on it very quickly. Uh, like, you know, racing games, one of their many advantages is that they are, the, the concept is immediately understandable to anyone from five to 500. So, you know, you press the button to move forward and you try to do it faster than your button. And there's a bunch of items that exist to just make it so that the person who is the best at doing a racing line does not have an easy time doing that racing line. <laughs> yeah. Switch attach rate compared to Wii is crazy. Both sold tons of selling digital stuff like crazy. Yeah, like, that's the thing is that the, the, the issue with the Wii was, was both an issue of, like, where the market was in terms of maturity. Like, w without smartphone games and Wii games to sort of, like, demystify games to a large portion of the audience, as well as the aging of the people who had grown up with video games and never let go of them. Uh, the market's in a much healthier place, but the Switch is also just, in general, equipped more to do both casual games and uh, and hardcore games, and just the way that uh, the digital marketplace has matured in a way that is very beneficial for something that the Switch's best argument is that it's an extremely convenient system to use. There's all sorts of things uh, working in its favor to uh, like make that perfect storm that's made it so that it's something that people you know people buy. And one of the other things that I found nice about buying digital things on the switch is, oh, it's the only like digital storefront with like a useful rewards program. <laughs> Like, I feel like that's underrated. Like, if I buy something on the Switch, they're going to give me, like, 5% of that in coins that I can then use to make the next game just that little bit cheaper that makes me feel a little bit better about buying it. That's pretty nice. Yeah. I don't I don't know why that isn't something on all the digital storefronts. It's, it's very simple. But then again, like, gifting options still aren't available on any of them. Yeah, I just bought some $20 game for like 70 cents using up a bunch of points that I don't even know how I got the other day. Yeah, they just they just accumulate as you buy things. Yeah, it's just like, okay. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, nice. Uh, I can just sort of... Yeah, but I, I usually use them like every purchase, so I, I don't know if it was... if I, I don't know, it was weird. I went to buy something and I had like 20,000 coins. It's like, okay... Uh, yeah, you, you say so, Nintendo. Yeah, I'm not question this. I'm just gonna, just gonna make my purchase, and move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, saying that he really wishes the gifting options existed on PSN. There's really no reason that like, the original Wii had gifting options, and that was like the most inconvenient thing in the world because you had to have someone's friend code to do it. But, like, there's there's really no reason that. Gifting options aren't standard on these things. No, they should be. I mean, it's one of the things make... I like about Steam is the gifting is so easy and so cool. Yeah, like, like you can you see, can you can see what drop people something want. horrible into someone. You can see yeah, what you people can... want. So you can see if they already have this. You thing. have a wish list. Like there's a wish list on all of these, and it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? No one else can see it. I could have surprised myself. Like the the thing that the wish list mostly does is just alert you. Like if you look at it, it's like, oh, there's a sale on that thing I wanted to pick up. I guess I'll do that now. But it's one of those things. Like, why would you not give a gifting option? 
so that people could buy things off of your wish list and send them to you. Because, like, you know, I, I like getting physical games a lot, but, you know, a lot of people, if I were to gift them a physical game, it's like, oh, I've gifted them something less convenient. They would rather just have the digital game. So it's like, why would you not just make it so that I can do that instead of having to send them a hard code and say, hey, this is for insert game or something like that. Your thoughts on Pikmin? Must be doing something or they wouldn't keep making them. I mean, Pikmin 3 Deluxe sold the best out of any of those, and I think it sold like 3 or 4 million. I'm sure that it makes its money back, but there's a reason that they don't uh, make them too terribly often. Uh, I want to say that uh, I want to say that it's in part like one of those situations where the games sell well enough that the fact that there exist people within the company that want them made allows them to keep happening even though if you were to just look at what makes the most money you wouldn't immediately make them and it's also benefited by the fact that because Nintendo basically makes one game in a specific series per console generation, eventually, like all those people that would that you know maybe this guy maybe these people would normally be on the Mario Kart team or the uh, 3D Mario or Zelda or the Metroid or you know whatever team that you you know would normally be occupied by that. Eventually, they run out of those things to make. Those games still sell. Nintendo sees no reason to replace them because they're still on the same platform. So they just sort of say, yeah, you know, now that we've got some space where all of our major games are have a successor, yeah, go ahead, make a Pikmin. <laughs> the, you know, the, those, those unique combinations are what allows that to happen. Uh, Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, but yeah. Uh, just to briefly flash to what I've been playing. Uh, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm currently like feeling the pull to uh, start back in on Trails from Zero, which I'm about ten hours in out of probably about fifty. So I, uh, if I really decide to go nuts, I could probably get that done before Trails to Azure comes out. I don't think I will, but we'll see. I didn't think I would ever finish Trails in the Sky the Third in a week, and then that happened. So, <laughs> <laughs> who can say in this crazy world? Weird things happen. <laughs> Guy says, "I know I sort of touched on this before, but do you think Tears of the Kingdom will pull Majora's Mask and be a super unique Zelda, or double down on Breath of the Wild?" Uh, that's that's hard to yeah. say. Like we know so little about it. Um, I think that the formula of Breath of the Wild is currently in an ill-defined enough state uh, because, like, as a game, you know, it has a very defined identity. But there's been no other games in that style, so we don't know what a quote-unquote normal sequel to Breath of the Wild looks like. Yeah. 
And so I think that it will depend a lot on how you look at it. You will probably see elements that are like, yeah, they really doubled down on this. And then you'll see other things where it's like, this is really out of left field. What is this? I want to see uh, them double down on weapon destruction just to see the... You're, you're just... You're just you, you just want to see people see. Every time the, uh, yeah. anything... Every, every time anything hits anything, both objects explode. Yes. Uh, every weapon... It, breaks after one hit. That's why the Master Sword looks so rusty and grody in the fucking logo. Because it breaks too. Uh, but yeah, it's one of those things like uh, I, I think it will become more clear how direct or indirect a sequel to Breath of the Wild uh, Tears of the Kingdom really is when we're looking at Tears of the Kingdom's successor. Uh, if there's there's just a lot of ways to go from like you look at uh, at Ocarina of Time's Majora's Mask. Uh, Ocarina of Time, you know, Ocarina of Time was defining what 3D Zelda looked like, but at the same time, it was very much clearly built from the blueprint of that they had been following from Link to the Past to Link's Awakening to Ocarina of Time. There's a very clear uh, design. Uh, taxonomy that traces from one to the other. And then Majora's Mask is obvious, it is notable for breaking it. And uh, we don't have that kind of design taxonomy for Breath of the Wild. You can look at it and like people have, can and have made arguments that like, oh, it's a callback to Zelda 1, you can trace this and that from it. It's a callback to X, Y, and Z other Zeldas. And it's like, yeah, it's true, but there's no like obvious point of lineage in the same way that uh, people were able to look at Majora's Mask and say, that's very different from Ocarina, as well as able to look at Wind Waker and be like, in terms of structure, that's very similar to Ocarina. Uh, so I think that it'll, it'll definitely double down on some things. Uh, the, the huge world ship, it looks like it's only gotten bigger. But uh, the actual, like, this plays like Breath of the Wild, eh, hard to say. Uh, is it interesting that Final Fantasy 16 will be getting an M rating? Uh, an M rating, from what I understand. I guess, like, this kind of speaks to part of why I've felt pretty cynical about the game is the that's exactly the move I would expect them to make. Specifically because this game feels very much like it was a game concepted in about 2017, which seems to be when it entered development, to make as heavy an appeal to what the zeitgeist was in fantasy and RPGs at the time. And so... Game of Thrones. So, yep, there's a lot of, like, that That general mode of dark fantasy very much obviously at play. Uh, the, the kind, that kind of dark fantasy has, has seen a lot of success uh, outside of the typical fantasy genres, like it's treated as the more serious, acceptable fantasy that you can sell to the mainstream audience. Uh, that general... Uh, the, the general actionizing 
you know, Final Fantasy's been doing that for forever, but, you know, FF15, FF7 Remake, both of them are taking a much more broad choice. Uh, uh, Fireminer, this, this is an interesting question. I'll get to it when I'm finished with this tirade. Uh, and Budai adds, is FF16 a response to Witcher 3? I'm not sure if it's a response directly to Witcher 3, but The Witcher 3 was definitely... The Witcher as a concept was definitely one of the things it's responding to. Because, like, you listen to Naoki Yoshida, who's basically taken the lead on TR for this game. He is... As much as anything, he is the one who is trying to sell you the vision when you hear someone talk about FF16. Uh, and the things that he said are very clear, like, we were worried that Final Fantasy was getting to be too uh, insular. That so they, you know, they went with a tonal choice that is that when they started definitely was known for attracting people who were not who would not self-describe as fantasy fans. Uh, but which also has a certain cachet among Final Fantasy fans. There are certain people that like. If especially if the Evil East games are your favorite games, you want things that dress themselves up in being uh, very specifically fantasy, less uh, less sci-fi, and very specifically like giving the impression of political machinations. Even though basically none of the Evil East games ultimately end up being about them, they definitely pay lip service to the idea of political machinations. And that's very much the thing that they've been trying to pay lip service to with this. Uh, and in general, that that generally, th like all of these tonal elements, feel like they have been carefully selected to meet what is thought of what what they would consider to be the mass fantasy audience. And like to some extent, that's that's the give and take of making a big expensive video game. That like any big expensive piece of media. The give and take of some of this is the personal obsessions of the people making it, and some of it is their assumptions about what the audience wants. That's just how it is. It's just, and this is part of the reason that I've been so obviously cynical about it, 16, is that I feel like I can see too much of how they're trying to appeal to a very specific audience that is perceived as what the mass market is. Um, and if it's, so, it's going for that Game of thrones -y audience, I feel like it's mostly grabbing the worst parts of Game of Thrones. Yeah, and it's 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 hard to say because again, we like we're, we've only it. seen marketing, right? Yeah, uh, like, like both of us are going to purchase this game at some point yeah and we may end up yeah I, it's just a question of like it's coming out in june and it's like do i have money then or do i just feel like waiting for yeah. like a price drop or whatever but you know it's of course i'm going to play it i've played basically every single one of these including you know like the only one i've skipped is ff11 like i've played ff14 i didn't enjoy it it wasn't my thing because i just don't enjoy mmos as a gameplay loop but played it I even, uh, I even played Type Zero, despite yeah, like played English, that too. Like the didn't English have fun version, with it, but despite it, having imported it and realized that this is a bad video game, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things. Like we're we're gonna play it, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, I'm gonna try to give it a fair. Like, I, I'll say I can't say I'll give it a fair shake because, like, obviously from the way I'm talking, I have some degree of prejudgments that I'm going to try to set aside. But you know, I, I'm still me. I'm still gonna carry into it my own ideas about how it should be. But uh, you know, it's one of those things like. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, people, people resist when they feel like they can see the strings, uh, in terms of media manipulation. That comes down to individual media and how people react to things that are obviously meant to make them feel, uh, sad or whatever. Uh, you know, and, you know, that, that goes for hype cycles as well. When you can see the strings of, like, this is very obviously the audience this was meant to pull in. Like, that pulls in. Like, that that kind of manipulation can put people off as well. And that's kind of where I think both main wheels are at. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, let's hit uh, a couple more uh, questions. Fireminer says, sorry for this weird question, but what do you think about buying dumb electronics, aka non-smart TVs, refrigerators, etc.? My Toshiba smart TV was unable to connect to the switch after a firmware update had discovered the net for a 2k non-smart replacement uh i i if i had the kind of money to throw around i'd basically always be choosing the dumb version i fucking uh, hate smart tvs I'll put that out there in general like the, the reason that smart tvs exist the reason they're so much more common is and the reason that they often are cheaper is because they are data collection engines <laughs> You put a little computer in there that collects uh, advertising data that then gets sold to advertisers and then, uh, money makes the work around. Uh, and uh, in, in general, you know, uh, that's that's true of basically any quote-unquote smart electronic. It's trying to collect some kind of data. Uh, but, you know, in, in general, uh, anyone who works with computers would know all of these are points of failure. Uh, the more you interconnect your technology, the more one part of it breaking breaks other things with it. They're also always like the worst possible computer you could find. The apps are terrible. Oh yeah, because the, the computer part is really just to impress people who just want their like shit to like the the apps exist for the kind of person who would have previously bought like a fire stick or whatever, or a Roku box, yeah. you know, just something that selects streaming services for them to watch, uh, trying to use it for anything else. And it just breaks. They are way worse than a fucking fire stick. They are, but <sighs> you're trying to sell convenience. Yeah. And when someone's told, and it comes with the ability to just instantly start watching all your streaming shows, that's, very easy sell. Um, Firemeyer says LG and Walmart brands actually still sell dumb 4K TVs. Yeah, yeah. And in general, I'm not sure. I, I know that at least in some cases, the, the dumb versions are actually a little more expensive because, again, the price is being partially subsidized by selling your advertisement data. Yeah. I wish I could find yeah. a nice Sony dumb TV, because the last Sony TV I had lasted a long time. It was great. 
Yeah. And actually, Bring back I, I, should say, I, I say it lasted a long time, like it stopped working. It still, it still works. It's, it just got replaced. It just got replaced for a 4K TV. They should bring back the Trinitron brand, but only use it for dumb TVs. Remember the Trinitron? Extremely fascinating. I hate the uh, name too, calling it a dumb TV. I don't like it. Don't like it. Whatever, people. Yeah, it's, it makes sense. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say was, remember Trinitron? If you're fascinated by weird old cathode ray tube technologies, there's a, there's a good video made on YouTube by a, guy, by a channel called Technology Connections that was a good history on the Trinitron uh, sub-brand. It was pretty impressive uh, with the CRT TV. Worked out very well for Sony, actually. Um, let's see. Uh, TVs are usually one of the most long-lasting electronics in your home before all, the, before all this Android TV should happen. Yeah, that's one of the other things that, you know, you can uh, sort of more, like, one of the things I've kind of felt since it happened is that once the, during the changeover to HD and digital TVs, TV manufacturers got really drunk on how much money that brought in compared to people replacing their cathode ray tube TVs once every 20 years. Uh, that was... Uh, Smoking Joe says you can also just not connect smart TV to the internet. Sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. Um, uh, no less. Three refrigerators before my old CRT. Samsung died on me. Yeah, like CRTs were very mature, well understood technology by the time they died. And people had gotten very good at making ones that uh, would last quite a while that were also cheap. Uh, the but like I said, I, I feel like companies kind of got drunk on how much money that the switch to HCTVs brought in because it was suddenly instead of you know a twentieth of your consumer base replace buying replacements, suddenly you had you know tens and twenty percent every year having to buy a new one because it's like well it's time to upgrade, and so they've been kind of chasing the technology that will cause that kind of thing to happen again. Uh, so in the late aughts, early tens, you had 3D TV, and that was an absolute dead letter. Nothing nothing happened with that. No one wanted that. So the, that feature set went away entirely. Uh, and then, you know, currently you've got 4K, and it's like, well, it turns out that you need 4K content, and 4K content is really, really expensive. <laughs> so you get in this really weird situation. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't want to miss one of the dice comments, which is about to scroll off the screen, so I'm going to bring it back up. Uh, dice saying to me, Yakuza Zero uh, was the strongest Japanese answer to the Witcher 3 without trying, but succeeding anyway. Single player, true story. Rich uh, single character side quest, rich game. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. Like, if you want to draw that comparison, I'd say it's it's a fair one, uh, and it kind of showcases what uh, the different uh, perspectives were that created them. You draw the design taxonomy uh, for Yakuza Zero, and you're tracing back to Yakuza One, which was open, but only as a consequence of trying to create a backdrop 
uh, not really as the core to its design. And then, uh, whereas like you look at something like The Witcher 3 and openness is the core of its design. It's, it's extremely built around that, that open uh, area to explore. So you have Yakuza, which builds up to zero and like reaches the point where it's like really using its, the open nature of Kamurocho and Sotenbori. But it's, it's using that, it's expanding from a small place and filling that in with density. Whereas The Witcher 3 is trying to create a feeling of density in a larger area by using, it is building off The Witcher 1 and 2 in the sense that like, it's using the same side quest design philosophy as those, but the actual uh, design involved is very much trying to use that design philosophy and marry it to a post-Skyrim open world game. Uh, and those, those two things end up producing things that have, be, because of the various things that built up to them, they have, uh, you know, uh, very comparable strengths, but they come to them in different ways and produce very different feelings by virtue of it. Uh, let's see. Uh, but I asks, uh, what can Japanese RPGs do to catch up to Western RPGs in terms of representation. I'm not convinced that either of them super good at it yet. Um, I do think that uh, the like the thing that obviously brings this to mind is that the fucking FF16 team has to keep talking around having stepped on a rake in terms of representation. Uh, but in general, like, I don't know that uh, the, the, the American and European industries are actually a great deal better at this. I mean, we're maybe five years out from uh, the Witcher developers essentially giving the exact same reasoning for why uh, The Witcher 3 is uh, relatively... Uh, not 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 a super diverse uh, environment like you get fantasy people but not uh black people um, and budai says they aren't you're right but they're like inquisition did some better uh yeah saying you're not wrong uh but yeah and yeah the answer with something like inquisition is that inquisition is relatively good at it because bioware made it a core to their ethos that they wanted to make an inclusive game, a game that was more diverse and served more people. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, if you look at, I've, I've plugged this channel many times, but uh, Mark Dara's channel on YouTube, when he's talking about Bioware games, you can get a uh, discussion about uh, romances uh, was one of the things that he talked about, and like that ends up, you know, a lot of gender diversity and uh you know the the capacity to show off queer characters ends up showing up in the romance subplots and that you know that is a choice that was made and one of the things he talks about is that like his expectation is that you will probably see uh an attempt at things like uh you know uh more trans characters and trans romances and uh more characters that are uh, perhaps like 
some somewhere on the ace spectrum uh that you'll see more of those in future games because that is like a commitment within bioware's culture that's a thing that they want to do uh and i think that's that's kind of what you end up having to do is that when you're conceiving your game you have to commit like we want to do this uh that we want to commit to that diversity early on so that it's something you're thinking about from the start instead of something that you're trying to poke in when you're finishing. Because if you've got 90% of a game done and you're trying to make it diverse after the fact, you're running into situations where it's like, okay, we can insert examples of this, but they are conspicuous by how few how few in number they are. Uh, you, you see this a lot also with like uh, with things that you know uh, maybe you know people like me would not immediately think of like one of the things that I see uh, when uh, among you know black people that I know when they're when a new game comes out with a character creator is there's usually like how well does this character creator handle making black characters that look good? Because, like, you know, you'll get plenty, because that is a unique and separate concern in terms of how, you know, like, what the shaders need to look like. How does this look uh, in the lighting? Like, does the lighting engine work favorably here? Uh, and, you know, you run into these situations where it's like, you really need to be thinking early on because you can't fix it afterwards. So, uh see uh but yeah I, I don't want to go on this too long not because it's not important but because my opinions on it are not super like nuanced it's just one of those things it's like uh, that's the best i can give is that you need to you need to commit to it early because you can't people will notice if you're trying to fix it afterwards um let's see uh, Smoking Joe pops in. Hey, Smoking Joe. Uh, I experience sensory overload and option paralysis in open world, open world games sometimes. I think that's uh, one of the things that, like, uh, a lot of UI devs have sort of failed to fully understand as part of the design process and part of the reason that people got sick of the the stereotypical like Ubisoft open world, which isn't specific to Ubisoft, but like this map that has just tons and tons of icons and shit on it. And it's just like, uh, cause like there's, there's the paralysis that comes from my map has nothing on it. And I don't know where to go, uh, that you can get in a lot of really old open world games. And then there's the paralysis of my map has infinite shit on it. And I can't prioritize which. And I think that more games are afflicted with the latter than the former nowadays. Uh, and as you get something like Elden Ring, as much as I'm not, you know, I, I'm, it's, it's good. I'm not as high on it as some people. But one of the things that it's good at is that the map doesn't have that much on it. It has enough to direct you. And the level design around it picks up the slack. Uh and that, you know, you don't need to show the player everything. Uh, let's see. 
you you just need to you, you just need to show them enough that there is something specific that they should want to do. Uh, Breath of the Wild, uh, as as is obvious, was very good at that. By uh, you don't get to see everything, but when you go up a tower, you have an excuse to look up all the shrines near you. Those gives you give you something that is always worth your time. And it once you've uh, gotten through the opening area, the game just sort of uh, the game gives you the things that you need to know. These are the things that advance the plot, and it tells you things that you'll use as waypoints to get to the things you need to know. Just to say, you have the shrines between A and B, and then it lets you decide how to prioritize those. But it's already given you your top priority. Uh, Fireminer says, just do a Discworld RPG. Yeah, I'd play that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think the only Discworld games that were ever made were the uh, point-and-click adventure games from the 90s. Uh, Discworld and Discworld 2 Reality Bites. But... Those are pretty okay. Yeah, they're decent. Uh, I think uh, the first one of those is actually my introduction to Discworld. I seem to recall they were pretty good at that. There's some other like really old, weird Discworld things. There was a Discworld multi-user dungeon. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, a mud. Yeah. And some some old stuff. There's a there's a Spectrum adventure game based on the color of magic. That's real early. Um, and then of course you've got stuff like uh, uh, source book for uh, tabletop stuff and board games and shit. Uh, as far as uh, oh god, Discworld Noir. I forgot that happened. That was weird. Uh, but yeah, I feel like. This world feels like a pretty ripe uh, source for a, a fun RPG. I feel like if a, a mid-budget studio got hold of that license, uh, they could probably turn out something pretty special. Get Obsidian on uh, that shit. I mean, Obsidian's got a lot on their plate at the moment. I know. They, they, they could do something cool with it. Oh, absolutely. But... Uh, See. Let's see. Uh, what was an RPG you loved on Second Chance? Although uh, Budai admits we might not have an answer for this. Uh, on Second Chance. Um, and think. Bloodborne. Yeah, yeah, I had to do a fair bit of finagling to get you to give that yeah. one second chance. I really tried the first time it bounced off me, and the second time was like a revelation. Hmm. It was. That's. Uh, I could probably think of some other ones, but none bigger than that. Like a complete 180. Hmm. Yeah, like, uh, I think the. Like, this, this one hardly counts because I, I never turned around on the game that initially turned me away, but. Uh, Dark Souls 1 as a uh, game that I very much was predisposed to not like. Um, 
I would say as, as a franchise, I largely turned around on Kingsfield. When it was new, I played it and super, super did not like it. Which, I mean, for a 10-year-old, that's not surprising. But uh, the uh, when I play it now, I, I can definitely find things that I very much appreciate about Kingsfield. So that's in that ballpark. Uh, let's see... Um, Fireminer says that after that notorious BBC Discworld series, I'm not sure the Pratchett Estate are willing to give the license to anyone. Yeah, and I can't say as I blame them. Uh, but it is one of those things like in the ideal world where uh, some like smaller studio licenses the Discworld IP for games, there's, there's a lot of different roads you can take with that and a lot of world you can do. And you get something that can have some comedy and some drama in it and um, you can still do your own thing with it because people don't expect Discworld to follow a specific character or uh, have to be set in a specific part of Discworld so yeah it's kind of a neat idea uh, Dice says how should a game reward exploration Breath of the Wild uh, did but do you think it could be even better so one of the things uh, I, I would say uh, about uh, rewarding exploration is that there are generally like it, broadly speaking you, you could really say that there are two ways that exploration gets rewarded. The act of exploring was fun or the thing that you got at the end was worthwhile. And ideally, you know, to some extent, you'll do both. But uh, this, the, the place that, like, miscellaneous collectibles break down is that they often do neither. So, like, I'm thinking of the things you think of in, again, don't mean to pick on them, but this is the easy answer. Is that, like, say the feathers in Assassin's Creed or, like, the archetypal, like, bad collective. Mm. They are not fun to get by in and of themselves. They're just scattered everywhere, and some of them are in interesting places to reach, but tons of them aren't. Uh, and you get nothing until you get all of them, which is going to take most of the game. And the reward is usually, like, a, a really high-end piece of equipment, but it's one of those things It's like, for all that effort, it's not enough. It's not a game-changer in most cases. Like those collectibles, when you when you look at something like Breath of the Wild, the shrines always reward. You know exactly what you're getting from a shrine, and that reward its value diminishes over time because you already have tons of health or stamina. But you always know you're always making an informed decision when you go into a shrine about exactly what you're going to get from it, and. That reward is extremely, uh, you know, it, it's always something that is close to getting you to that next thing. Gudai uh, uh, brings up that Nino Kuni 2 comes to mind as a game that you could explore and open a chest only to find really lousy purchasable items. And yeah, like that, that's the thing. Like, uh, you, you have that balance of. Uh, 
one of the things that I noticed while I was playing Dragon Age Inquisition is that uh, finding loot was not super exciting in that game because the best of anything, you were always better off just crafting it. It was, it was just going to vastly outstrip anything that was within your level range that you could find. Uh, but, but in general, like, uh, you know, the, there are ways to get around this. Um, one of the things I was thinking of, like while playing warrior within was that, you know, the life upgrades, the reward for getting all of them is really strong because it's, you know, it's a different ending. Like that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, and the act, the act of actually finding them is obnoxious and kind of tedious. But the act of getting the life upgrades once you find them is fun because they're really they're really interesting, tough platforming sequences that are tough in a way that they would never put in the main game areas because uh, they're very hard to traverse multiple directions. They are. Uh, extremely deadly. Like it's, it's very. You're probably going to die at least once trying to get through them. But they're, they're interesting. Uh, the, the reward is as much that the traversal to get the item was fun. Uh, let's see, uh, Fireminer saying so. Actually, making loot come in easier and more is more fun. In other words, how fun is loot grinding in Diablo? really uh that's going to depend on the player's psychology obviously yeah. like i personally have a very bad psychology for it i i find like i personally don't feel like i'm working towards something it just happens at some point and i find that like not to be overly dramatic i find that kind of grind literally nauseating yeah. uh when i when i know that i'm going to be doing a repetitive task for a long time but with no idea of how long that will actually be it actually sets off like a weird like mental nausea reflex i don't even know how but uh that's that's of course you know there's never a one size fits all for any of this but i do think that uh the the other thing to not underestimate is that a lot of people like grinding <laughs> so like that can a hundred percent fulfill the the reward should be fun to actually get uh because like that's the other thing is that like when when you bring up shrines and breath of the wild they're both because the reward is known but like the the way to get it will involve solving a cool puzzle like there are very few of the, and like you'll see that the player players quickly determine what ones that they don't care about like you'll find people that skip the combat ones because they don't care about the combat ones they're like it's not worth it to them and so when you get to, when you go down into a shrine, it's like mastery of combat. It's like, well, no thanks, and they leave. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. Like uh, the reward is good. Like, the reward needs to doesn't even need to be good per se, but it needs to be to have a tangible effect on the game. And that's one of the things that loot farming 
is good at. Like, if you're the kind of person who cares a lot about granular build abilities, you can get a lot more out of loot farming. And if you're the kind of person who likes grinding, who finds grinding relaxing or enjoyable, that's another way that the, the act of, of, of exploring the game space can be fun. Uh... Uh, I'll hit this question from Budai in a moment. One just, thing uh... I was going to say on like the Diablo loot grinding. Oh, of course. Um, I feel like there's a pretty fine line to walk as far as how as far as how you do loot grinding. Like one of the problems mm -hmm. I've always found in a lot of games like that is you're just looking you're just looking to get the the piece of loot that has the higher number. So, <laughs> whereas the design I've always found more interesting in a game that not a lot of people seem to like that I loved that did this was Dungeon Siege 3 where <laughs> a, a lot of times when new gear would drop it was okay these numbers are higher but these numbers are lower. Does <laughs> How does this affect the way I'm playing this character and the build that I have? And I find that a lot more interesting than just oh I'm grinding for the I'm grinding for the best possible piece of gear or whatever. It's... Yeah, I think th I think that a key with loot grinding. Sorry, to I don't mean to interrupt you too much. That's fine. You got, uh, I think a key with loot grinding, as someone who personally doesn't have a huge taste for it, but which is important, is that uh, when you get that thing you've been grinding for, you do definitely need to feel something has changed. Yes. Like, it, one of the things that, like, I, one of the things I think that propels the current, like, backlash we're seeing against, like, the concept of, like, loot scores, like they showed in that wretched-looking Suicide Squad trailer, <laughs> uh, is that the... They, that a lot of games have... Uh, that are bad in that sort of loot farming uh, area, they've used these numbers to try to create the perception of difference that doesn't feel like it comes through in the gameplay. Yeah. So you'll get something like a Destiny, where you have very strong... Uh, like, you know, I, I'm not a fan, but like when I see wheels pull out like one of the weird weapons he's got like they they definitely feel designed and like there's a difference between using them but a lesser kind of game in that genre you'll get a new weapon and the only thing like in observable effects you'll only really notice it if you're paying a lot of attention to what the numbers are uh it doesn't it doesn't strongly affect how you play it doesn't have a strong aesthetic design sense like, there's all sorts of things that need to come together to make it feel like yeah. that loot farm was worth it. You can't just give them a, the same gun with a higher number. Yeah. Let's see. And, yeah, as Budai mentions, there's a certain zen-like function to grinding, but it has to work. Yeah, like, when you... That's, that's why when you look at something like... Uh, part of the reason that people find grinding more acceptable in something like Dragon Quest, it's not just because the game is old and people just don't expect different out of it. It's because when I gain a level in Dragon Quest, I'm going to feel it. 
it's gonna like it will be obvious to me that the next that the dungeon I'm traversing has just gotten easier. Uh, like that, that's that reinforces the sense of progression that the the grinding is meant to add. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, the, when you've got a million granular little stats, you have to become por- correspondingly more careful that the player knows what any of them does and gives a shit about what any of them does. Like yeah. you gain, you gain levels in like a Souls game, and uh, you immediately see the difference. Like, oh, my health bar is longer, my endurance bar is longer. Uh, like, I'm doing more damage when I hit things like that. You know, it's simple, but it is the key. Like, when I get something, I need to feel like it did something. Yeah, I, I can. <laughs> and not you, just. I can, I can give you a good, okay. a good example of this too. Using, mm-hmm. using Destiny. Um, mm-hmm. There's this game, grenade launcher, if you're watching the stream or have seen me play this, you've probably seen me use it that I really like. Um, and it's a craftable weapon, and there's lots of different perks. And, you know, there's one that I heard was really good. It's called Train, train Reaction. Uh, so I grinded out the weapon, uh, the craftable version. You can, can also farm the weapon and get it randomly, but I grinded it out to get this perk and tried it out and saw an immediate and satisfying effect because what it does is when you kill a weapon you wouldn't kill a weapon we kill an enemy they explode mm-hmm. so this being a grenade launcher that can kill a bunch at once you can it's like a one it, what was already a really good ad clearing weapon becomes like something next level and it was something that I felt immediately using the thing that was that that kind of thing is incredibly satisfying even though it's like this, mm-hmm. a, this is even though it's a weapon I've already been using just you know a different perk on it having that much of a, an, an impact is really satisfying and that's that's the kind of grinding I really look for in a game it's, and when you okay yeah just that immediate impact of you know even if it even if you're grinding for something and it doesn't necessarily work out, like, okay, I don't really like this, just you have to be able to tell that something is different and whether or not it necessarily works out for what you're trying to do in the game. It's this kind of... You have to feel something, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be, like, some sort of catharsis at the end of the grind. Like, even if it's bad, even if it's like, oh, well, that was a waste of my time. It's like... You you felt something when it happened. Yeah. No, uh, and I, and that I've gotten that too before. Like, oh, I'm gonna grind out and get this exotic weapon. It's like, wow, this is. Uh, I, hate hate, this. I hate. I hate. <laughs> but I yeah, got the like thing, I... and you know, it was it was worth the experience to try and like just to see what it was, and that that kind of grinding is really satisfying instead of just. Um, Wow! Hey, this this gun in the Suicide Squad is ten numbers higher than the other one. God, had so, we recorded before that state of play? Like, did we did we take that task on the podcast? I I think when was that? That was last week. That was six. That was six days ago. No, was it on a Tuesday? I thought it was on a Thursday. 
I think, yeah, I think it is. No, I don't think we've had talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> it looked bad. Yeah, it did not look good. I know a lot of people. Uh, I feel bad for it. And... I feel bad for Rocksteady yeah. because I, this looks like something where someone at Warner Brothers is like, "That Destiny's making a lot of money. You better make one of those." <laughs> this looks like no one's immediate idea of what to do with Suicide Squad. <laughs> so sick of all these destiny clones and oh this is going to be a destiny killer and it's like none of you i don't think anyone believes it'll be a destiny killer at this point other than the executives uh, yeah no that not that but i mean this i've seen other games sort of like well look at this looter shooter and all this cool stuff and it's like yeah you and fundamentally don't understand why people like destiny and uh, as with any service game you look at it and it's like you can't just be a little bit better. You yeah. need to be better enough that people would stop playing what they're already playing. Even if it actually is better. <laughs> uh, I, I have to wonder if Suicide Squad was intended to be like a fully live service game like Avengers was, and maybe they dialed it back after that. Um, I made this. I made the slightly tasteless joke when uh, when I first saw it. I wonder if the person in charge of this game started day drinking when Avengers came out. Because <laughs> oh boy, uh, that was that must have been an impact crater. I, mean, I feel bad because Avengers has all this fun single player content. It's just like just a noose around its neck from yeah. the live service bit. Uh, yeah, I just yeah, like like Suicide Squad. One of those things that like feels like you can tell that a big marketing meeting was held and made a determination about what to do because there are many things that King Shark should be and should be able to do. He shouldn't have any use for guns, and he sure as shit shouldn't be flying. No, but. They needed him to fit within this kind of general looter shooter destiny knockoff milieu, so they made him do both. <laughs> and it's just sad. It's just frustrating to me, and, and I'll tell you why. Because we just had a very good Marvel game a few years ago in Ultimate Alliance 3. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this. I was doing a lot of the same grindy things, but right. you know, it was. It didn't need the life... Like, people enjoy grinding. They don't need the live service element. We do not need... Like, the the argument made over and over and over again over these past many years is that, like, one of the most... One of the things that trumps just about everything else in terms of priorities is convenience. And you're taking a very calculated risk when you make a live service game because it is you are making deliberately one of the most inconvenient kinds of games imaginable. Yeah. You are making a time sensitive game. And like it's it's not even just that with that game, just like why the Suicide Squad? Why why do I give a shit? And just Yeah, the, like there's the the general irksomeness of like we are getting a game called Kill the Justice League. Before we get a good Justice League game, like, for most of the members of the Justice League have a decent game. Like if you if you're gonna make like an individual superhero game, fine. If you're gonna make like a big 
big team, like an X-Men game, fine, because that's a huge roster, but like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why does Captain Boomerang have speedster powers? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> and that disgusted me. Like, you're seriously like, getting... That, that's the weirdest part, because like, the Flash has like five different villains that are all the Flash but evil, who just have speedster powers. Captain Boomerang isn't one of them. No, he's not. He's not. What, what the... What's going on? I don't understand. There are so many reverse flashes in some, like, whether I whether you're talking about, I think there are four different people who've had the mantle reverse flash. There's so but many there's, different, just flash, you could, you could have a live service flash fucking game. If you the really the flash actually has shit. a really strong rogues gallery, as it turns out. I want a flash game. And, uh, I, I with so with Wally, with Wally West, please, please, and thank you. Can can someone like go back in time and make that bottle rocket flash game that was prototyped actually come out? Because that looked really cool, actually. Yes. I think I've told you about this before, and I think it hurt you. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think I've said this before, and I will say it again. I was so glad and continued to be over the moon that they decided to. Uh, reinstate Wally West as the main character in the Flash comic book. Thank God. Yes, so good. I'm done with Barry. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and you know what? But, you know what the funny thing is too. It's like Wally is every, all the adaptations that had Barry in them to make him interesting. They just made him more like Wally. Yeah. And, and Wally is like the the old character now because he's a dad with multiple kids. And, yeah. And Barry seem, honestly seems like the younger character. <laughs> like, oh. uh, but yeah, the, the thing I was going to say about that was like, yeah, I think I've, I've ranted about this before. There's a good uh, YouTube video showing a bunch of footage of it, but there was a uh, Flash game being made in the late aughts for the PS3 and 360 <sighs> that uh, was, it was known as the Flash Fastest Man Alive. And it starred... Uh, it was a Wally West Flash, I believe. Uh, oh. But it was it was the beginning of his tenure as the Flash. So like you you were doing like his first year as the Flash, and as like it was basically the idea was that you had, uh, you know, like all these random crimes that would be happening that like no normal person could get to these, but because. You were able to run really fast. The faster you were running, the shorter the clocks would be on them. So you'd be able to actually catch these like random criminals while doing the main story. And like how much you prioritize that would, if you were prioritizing that, it, they would like open up the Flash Museum, and like you know, like it would be shown. People would you know show that they oh we love we love the Flash. He helped he helped us all. And then like you know if you're not actually stopping them, the place just gets more sad and decrepit, and people uh, start throwing rocks at you as you run by. <laughs> But, you know, it, it had, like, uh, Bottle Rocket, if you don't know them, they were formerly a division of Sony that had split off that were responsible for a game called The Mark of Cree, which had a patented, at the time, combat system where you would uh, set markers on enemies nearby and you would, uh, it would assign buttons to them. And you would be able to hit enemies around you by hitting the button assigned to them so you could fight enemies in groups. And that made perfect sense for the Flash because you would press 
you, you would have a bunch of enemies around you and you would like say press the Y button and the flash would just jet over and hit that dude. And it would allow you to like crowd control by, you know, running around doing that. There was some interesting, uh, it looked really interesting. They had some, uh, they were working a lot on tech for how to make it feel good to control the flash in, uh, it, it, at speed. So they had like some buttons for like doing quick 90 degree turns. And it, it looked really like it was, it was very much in prototype shape, but it was a really promising looking, uh, idea and it's it's very sad because that would have been incredibly cool but we didn't get it. Sorry, I needed to torch to you a bit. We else. It's okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, to hit some of these questions, uh, Budai asks: Is Tengai Makio the biggest JRPG series that was never hinted at out in the West? I read it had the biggest budget of a JRPG at one point. I mean, yeah, like in. You know, a in, in the late 80s, uh, Tengai Makio 2 Manjimaru was a multi-million seller. <laughs> like, that's that's definitely nothing to sneeze at. Uh, like, those games were huge as far as the uh, PC Engine went in Japan. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they don't have uh, a lot of modern descendants. Uh Namida eventually came out on PS2 and GameCube, but did it even come out on GameCube or was that version canceled? Whatever. Point is, uh, Namida eventually did come out, but that was kind of all she wrote. There was never a push to continue the series after that, other than a handful of re-releases and remakes of the older games. Uh, but yeah, the, the it was definitely a very big series in the late 80s, early 90s in Japan. And yeah, there was there was never even. I think the closest we ever got to getting any of them was the remake of Tengai Makyo One for the Xbox 360, which uh, I think Gaijin Works hinted at wanting to localize at one point, but it just never mm. shook out. Huh? I said hmm, at the mention yeah. of Gaijin, Gaijin Works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to hit. Uh, a couple of the questions that we got in the Discord from Fireminer before I let that uh, slip my mind. Gonna pop on over to podcasts. Um, uh, okay, gonna hit some. Gonna hit some real quick ones. Uh, Okay. Let's, let's, let's uh, do uh, let's do like two more, and we'll call it a night. Yeah, uh, and we'll be back for these questions, uh, Fire Miner. So uh, don't worry. But uh, let's see. Uh, what do you think about people who complain that all Japanese RPGs have the same story, but never actually play that many JRPGs? I I don't I don't care about them. <laughs> uh, are they being style and lazy? What kind of Japanese RPG would a casual non-RPG fan pick up? Uh, I mean, a casual fan's probably going to end up picking up uh, a uh, Final Fantasy or a Dragon Quest. That's kind of it. And, you know, they, I, I feel like there's definitely tropes to them as there are to any uh, genre, but, you know, they... <laughs> It's 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 an intellectually lazy way of dismissing something, and it's much easier to just yeah. say, 
eh, they don't they don't draw me in, and I'll respect you a lot more than saying they don't have. Uh, when you start throwing around complaints about something you don't actually understand, you end up saying some really ill-informed shit. <laughs> um. Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. I once had a discussion on the first question. The person I talked to made an interesting point. There were snobs who preferred their topics of interest remained a niche. And there were snobs who wanted what they liked to be in vogue so they could be the cool ones. Could this be applied to video games? 100%. There's gatekeepers in every genre. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's certainly a, a strain of thinking even just about video games themselves that like certain people certain kinds of people don't appreciate these enough or have the have the right uh mindset about them it's just like man it's fucking entertainment it gives a shit um like just uh, I, i'm not doing the i think nothing has ever been uh, I don't even think that they were thinking about it in this way, but there's never been a more perfect joke about gatekeeping than the Simpsons uh, PTA disbands joke where Professor Frank is uh, teaching preschoolers and he's like playing around like a popcorn popper or whatever you call those things. And uh, he's just happily like pushing it back and forth. And one of the child children is like, uh, can I play with it? And his response is, no, you won't appreciate it on as many levels as I do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's, that's basically like entertainment is to entertain people. It does not matter how many levels they appreciate it on. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and, uh, there was one from Doomerang that I wanted to hit uh, early on. Uh, see, uh, Doomerang asks if the old PC98 RPGs like Legend of Heroes 236 ever got re-released and became possible to play. Do you think they would still be worth the time? Uh, well, Legend of Heroes 6 is Trails in the Sky, but I assume you meant 2 through 5. Um, I haven't been able to play... Legend of Heroes 2, but it's actually a fascinating game uh, from everything. Like, I, I've i tracked down what it is, and it's one of the most fascinating choices I've ever seen made with a, JR it was a sequel to any RPG, really, where it's just like they took the old world map, and one of the conceits of Legend of Heroes 1 is that as you play through the game and defeat enemies, monsters start disappearing from areas. When you start Legend of Heroes 2, playing as the son of the protagonist of the first game, and it's like 20 years later. And when you start the game, you have free reign of the world, because there's no monsters. They're still gone. Uh, and then, you know, you, you don't start proper until you start going underground and find that there's like this entire subterranean society. Like, it's a, it's a crazy game uh, that really does some interesting things. I think that if you play Legend of Heroes 1 and 2 as a, as a duology, you get a really interesting experience I think people would still be interested in. Uh, with Legend of Heroes 3 through 5, I think that a lot of people who like Legend of Heroes, you know, 6 through, I guess we'd be on 9 now? Trails in the Sky uh, is 6. Trails 
from zero slash Azure is seven. Uh, Cold Steel is eight. So yeah, Kudo is nine. So yeah, like people who like six three nine, a lot of that stuff is in the Gagar games to some greater or lesser extent. They're they do ultimately connect in an interesting fashion. They're very. Uh, I, I think that it's. It would also partially depend upon which version you're looking at. The PC uh, ninety eight versions are quite. Uh, they they actually made some fairly substantial changes to some of the uh, Windows ports. Uh, I think it's. I can't remember if it's three or four. I think it's four that had a bunch of plot scenes actually changed uh, up to and including like there are characters alive in one version who are dead in the other. Uh, and I, I th but I think that people who like JRP uh, who like RPGs of that era, I think, I think they would find a lot to like in those. Uh, if, if you can get back past the combat system of three, three has a three has some real bad combat, real bad. It's real bad, but you know, it's it's not necessarily a deal breaker, and I, I think that there people would find that there's a lot to like about those. Like the they they have a lot of you know unique charm to them that uh, you know I, I think I think there would there would be an audience for uh, a lot of PC 98 and PC engine RPGs, especially among people who listen to podcasts like this one, because we tend to be predisposed to liking old games, but <laughs> you know, I, I think that people would find a lot to like about, uh, these, these older games if they just had access to them. Uh, yeah. That's a uh, that's a pretty big it's uh, pretty big if so but yeah uh, I'm gonna quickly pull one question out of the question pile since it's part of our resolutions to get one more uh, to get at least one of those carved off every week uh, I do want to thank uh, Fireminer and Budai for showing up and providing us so much to chat about. Always a pleasure. Yeah. We love hearing from both of you. Let's see. Um, hey. Oh, hey, just in time for the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. I figured uh, it was going to be a short show with just the two of you. Well, it's also that we started fairly early. Yeah. Um, I did see that as well. <laughs> okay. So, uh, can I I'm real only quick... plugging myself this week. Go ahead, do it. But first, we gotta finish one last question, uh, okay. just to just to fit with our New Year's resolution. Uh, do we know what was the financial state of Ben Presto before they were bought out by Bandai? If I remember right, uh, Super Robot Wars: A Portable was made on a budget. And at that time, they had a few duds like Scramble Commander. I'm given to understand it wasn't great. Um, they were always always kind of reliant on a handful of franchises. Their history, I think, dates back to making, like, Master System-era uh, games. Uh, I want to say that they're responsible for real old garbage Master System beat-em-up called uh, My Hero. But uh, Ben Presto, I'm, I'm, like, the rising cost of game development 
the cost of licensing all these shows, which, you know, was something that was primarily Bondi's thing, but, you know, uh, it was definitely going to affect their budgets and the fact that the series sales were stagnating, all those things put together. I, I don't have any information about what their books looked like, but my best guess and what information I've ever heard is that they were not in the best place at the time. Okay. The fact that they got bought out by Bandai kind of helps them with the licensing side because they don't have to license Bandai. Yeah, have that, have that shit that have that shit Bandai owns lock, stock, and barrel. Honestly, most of it really. Uh, I think uh, about the only things that they have to license at this stage are things like the Brave series, which uh, Bandai has like. Some stake in uh, King of Braves, Gal Gaigar, but once the, the earlier you get, I'm not sure how much that's owned, uh, how much that they have a stake in that versus like when they put in something like Brave Express, Mike Gein. I think uh, other companies actually may control that license. So, you know, they, they put in some work in there, but, you know, anything with Sunrise, uh, Dynamic Productions, they have to. They have to actually actively license because Bandai doesn't own that. Uh, but, you know, a lot of anything Gundam, anything Sunrise, like those Bandai just has. They can just do whatever they want with. Uh, which, yeah, definitely makes license negotiations not as much okay, of a nightmare. What's that? What well, used to be Sunrise Animation, so that was the Gundam, of course, as you mentioned. But there are a bunch of the animes that were done by Sunrise Animation that people don't think of Bandai. Hmm. As mentioned, Gundam, like Cowboy Bebop was Although something... now, Sunrise Animation is called Bandai. Yeah, and I'm, I, I will probably spend, take a very long time to adjust to that. But, uh, you know, you look at something like Gundam, that's all Sunrise slash Bandai. Uh, Cowboy Bebop was not a difficult thing to license. They didn't have to license it. It's Sunrise. Uh think big o was also in that boat like you'll you'll just run into all these sorts of stuff it's like yeah no that's that's sunrise bondi owns it <laughs> so. Yeah, so and and that's although now of course it's sunrise animation as i mentioned is called bandai animation they changed the name i think the end of last year yeah they, they sunsetted that name uh I, I believe i think it was to help to alleviate some of the confusion Mm -hmm. But it's it's also just the typical brand consolidation shit. Uh -huh. But yeah, uh, in, in general, like the, that simplified that sort of thing. And you know, basically, Van Presto for decades at this point has been a super robot horse mm -hmm. factory. So it just kind of made sense to uh, consolidate that and you know simplify the balance sheets a bit mm -hmm. and just generally. Uh, probably saved the franchise just by virtue of the fact that, uh, you know, Van Presto by itself was probably going to end up uh, ultimately getting destroyed by the crunch of the uh, transition to HD if they didn't have a larger parent company to keep them solvent. Let's see. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's going to wrap up this show this week. Uh, Thank you once again to uh, Budai and Fireminer for providing many of our questions, as well as Smoke and Joe, who 
also popped in the chat and added to the conversation. Uh, you would uh, generally appreciate us uh, plugging what he's been up to. So I should mention that he uh, twitches, uh, streams on Twitch. I can't speak for twitching, but uh, streams on Twitch at twitch.tv slash smokingjoegamer. So give that a look. Uh, and also, since Gaijin's not here, I would point out that you can still purchase uh, Princesses of the Pizza Park, which uh, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor, which should be having a new uh, so, new content shortly, uh, and that you know it's uh, it's a good way to experience uh, vicarious uh, tabletop RPG. Uh, joys and regrets uh, minus uh, having to know more than you should have should have or would have wanted to about random internet strangers. So uh, give that a look. You can find that on Amazon as paperbacks or as uh, via Kindle or Kindle Unlimited. You can find them by searching for the author Michael Yarimizu Y-A-R-I-M-I-Z-U uh, Tam tell, tell us about the RP Gamer Twitch schedule. So um, you can always catch us at twitch.tv slash rpgamer uh, for any streaming that we do. We are available seven days. We have streams going seven days a week, all the staff members uh, playing a wide arrangement of different RPGs, bottom to metric, strategy, JRPG. We play through the gamult that is RPGs. So... Uh, and I specifically stream usually Tuesdays and Thursday mornings, unless I have uh, other commitments and or family drama. So, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> what a fun so. reason to skip a stream. <laughs> Sorry, what? Uh, no, I was joking. What a fun reason to have to skip a stream. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, so catch us there. And, uh, again, usually we're, we've got a pretty consistent group of good, good personalities. Except for me, I'm not the talkative one. I I just play the game. So, um, in some fact, people uh, want streams like that. Yeah, yeah. true. Uh, although, um, I actually got told that uh, the game I've been playing lately, which is Relayer, a uh, very very under uh, thought of game from last year, uh, someone saw one of our watchers saw me streaming and actually bought it. All right. Always yeah, nice so. to have a have a positive impact. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it, so I'm 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 going to actually try and write a, a review for it once I uh, once I beat it. Good idea. So, but yeah, so catch us there. Uh, what have you got there, uh, Mr. Wheels? Uh, other than catching this podcast on Twitch.tv/swheels, usually every Wednesday at midnight Eastern. You can also catch us every Sunday doing Saturday night shenanigans at the same time, midnight Eastern, where we play multiplayer games uh last week it was street fighter 5 sure we're, we were very see. mean to wheels during that period that's fair uh <laughs> not, sh- not sure what it'll be this week but uh we'll see and also uh if you check uh ask wheels on youtube i just posted a video of a stream i did earlier this week playing destiny 1 um during the Destiny 2 downtime, revisiting some of the old rains. It's a good time. Found a pretty good group of people doing the exact same thing, so that was fun. Um, Living the dream. Yes. Uh, 
that was that's it. Okay, and you can ask us questions like dear friends uh, Fireminer, Gudai, and Doomerang did. You can ask us if you catch the chat uh, when we're streaming. It's always a good time. Uh, if you uh, want to ask us questions in a non-real-time fashion, which I can hardly blame you, you can ask us questions via the comment section. <laughs> haven't had that happen in a while, but I still always check the last three episodes when we start recording. Uh, and you can ask us questions via the Discord. We did not get to all the Discord questions this week because of circumstance, but we are marking them down to make sure that they do get answered. Uh, if you want to join the RP Gamer Discord, you can find it at the community section of rpgamer.com. It's a lovely community whether you want to ask us questions or not, but uh, it's, uh, you know, if you've got any burning questions that you feel like me and Wheels and usually Gaijin sometimes can, if he's able to get here in time, uh, can pontificate on, then, uh, you know, just uh, drop them in the podcast section of the RP Gamer Discord. But otherwise, I think that about closes us out. So see you, Space Cowboys. See you.